you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome to the next edition of Bare Naked Money. Josh and Colin coming at you. And we're going to attack a couple of sacred temples for people. This this podcast, I think, Josh, we're going to maybe be controversial a little bit and uh, call out some weaknesses that we've seen in a couple of things that everybody believes in. Is that is that elusive enough, Josh? I think so. And I'm just really impressed that you took notes for this one, Colin. I, I'm blown away. <laughs> so our audience is going to be blown away as well because, hey, when you take notes, good stuff happens, I think. Well, this is when I really get wound up about something. I go off and I get my my poop in a row, as they say. So, <laughs> so let, let, let's let's jump into our first topic, Josh. And uh, for the edification of the audience, we have not shared the notes we've made. So you're going to see live how the cookie gets made. Uh, so the first conversation Josh and I had was regarding the state of the Canadian real estate market and the the plunge that it has gone through in the last number of months. And I use the word plunge with air quotes because again, that's just some of the commentary, but there has been a bit of a pullback in the Canadian real estate market. And, and as always, it's nuanced and there's a number of different ways to look at it. So where do you want to start eating this elephant from Josh? Well, I'm just happy. I managed to buy right at the top. That's exactly what I think you want to do most of the time, right? (laughs) Well, I think we all need to record the fact that uh, Josh is a leading indicator of the cycles of the real estate market, because if it happened once, that means it'll happen every time because that's how we decide who the smart people are. Right, Josh? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Does this make me smart or dumb? I'm not sure. You're, You're a leading indicator. Let's just leave it at that. Sure. Sure. So. Yeah. Where do we start? Well, I always get frustrated with the headlines in the real estate space because for me, they always say sales down 25%. And then you click on the article and they say, yeah, the volume of sales are down 25%. Prices are down 2%. Does this frustrate you as much as it frustrates me? I don't know they get frustrated by it because I've I've reached the point in my life that I never believe a headline uh, because I know they've picked the biggest number and the most extreme way of framing a conversation. Um, so I, I, I don't get surprised by it. Maybe I, I'm expecting when I click on it, there's going to be more to it, which I learned quite a bit actually going through this exercise as to the number of different ways that you can portray what's gone on over the last little while. But we, sh- we should preface this with, and again, to, to give perspective on all of this, people hold the, the feeling that real estate's always a good investment and it's never a bad investment and nothing bad ever happens. And our position isn't that it's it's a terrible investment. It's just, it has a bit of hair on it. And we're going to, I guess, quantify some of that hair over the next little bit. So I don't get as frustrated as you do, Josh, but I know you you kept going. Like when you were frustrated by the first number, you went looking for the second number. Did you find any more numbers? Well, yeah, I, I think in different, so it's it's always hard real estate, right? Because it's it's such a varied asset. My house in Mississauga is going to be very different than your condo in Halifax. And so sometimes when you see sort of the broad stroke numbers, real estate up, real estate down, it could be very, very different for different markets across the country. And so I saw some numbers 
different markets. Some are uh, down uh, single digits, some are down double digits, some are even down 15 plus percent. So I think that's at a point where it's becoming noticeable for people from a peak well, to down 15%. But it's also a reminder that the real estate market is not as efficient as other capital markets. We, we, we talk about price discovery in capital markets. What are the, what are the mechanisms where a price gets set? And when you're dealing with a share in a company, that's not regionally different. Uh, so the real estate market does have some very significant regional differences to it. And we often speak in averages. And, you know, Josh, you have a favorite expression about averages involving stoves and fridges that our listeners must know. Uh, so averages aren't always instructive, but uh, you're right. I think there are some regions that have been affected more or less than this. But have you have you seen anything as to the the actual dollar value of of decreasing in prices, or have you seen more volume numbers? Well, I've I've seen some, those percentage numbers that I'm talking about are are the declines in price terms. So I haven't seen too much in terms of dollars, but prices, yeah, you're down from what I've seen across most markets, somewhere between fifteen uh, five and twenty percent. Yeah, no, there's a couple of the ones that uh, BMO put out a piece. They were talking about the inventory of, of uh, homes for sale. And basically they express it in if no more houses got listed, how long would the inventory last? And at the peak last February, they were down to 1.7 months, which is a very, very short, very, very limited uh, number of homes out there compared to the volume of sales that were going through. But that's crept up now to 3.4, so it's doubled. So the inventory of available houses would take double the time to sell now than it would have earlier, which is an indication of, again, slowing, slowing transactions, which uh, could lead to lower prices and might be a leading indicator of low, lower prices. And there's also something else they track, sales to new listings ratio. Uh, it hit 75 uh, at the peak. So that was the number of sales to new issues, new, new listings at any point in time, which is a very high number. And in parts of Ontario, that's fallen to 40 percent, which is back to a number that hasn't been seen since 2008 or 2009. So again, by some of these activity measures, you know, the markets have fairly dramatically retreated. Now, the supposition is that prices will eventually fall. I mean, people can ask whatever they want for their house and they can stick to that price as long as they want. Um, but at some point, if they really want to sell their house, and this goes back to how motivated they are, uh, the prices are going to have to come down if we're going to see see transactions. And I, to your point, Josh, I've seen some of those numbers too on the average sale price dropping. Uh, so the, the deals are being done at lower prices now. Yeah. And the average price of sales dropped 190000 in Canada. Um, but I think that these, with increased inventory and reduced number of transactions happening, I think that the pressure is now on, on the sellers uh, to, to maybe sharpen their pencil or lower their expectations a bit. Yeah, what we're really talking about is supply and demand. And at one point, demand was really tight and supply, or sorry, uh, supply was really tight and demand was exceptionally high. And that seems to have kind of flip-flopped on its head now, whereas today your supply is, is growing a little bit and demand has definitely waned a little bit. And I think part of that's got to be interest rates. Interest rates have come up quite a bit. So the cost of of carrying a house now is significantly, I'll say significantly higher than it was just uh, just six months ago. So that's definitely factoring in. Now, Colin, one of the headlines that I've seen and um, the real data points that I've seen is that the expectation from some out there is that the real estate market 
will drop by up to 25% Canada-wide, so some markets more than that, by the end of next year. Now, I don't know how they came up with these numbers, but how valid do you think this is? Well, any prediction of the future is kind of silly. Is Vladimir Putin going to hit something else with a missile in the next 12 months? But I think what you're quoting is the Desjardins number that was put out there. And they were basically projecting uh, off of April, May, and June saw drops of 4% per month in the average price of a home sale. So that's with rounding. It's about 15% in three months that yep. they've seen it. And Wawa, it's another source, uh, said that the average price uh, twenty in February 2022, the peak was the average price for sale in Canada was 816. And it's fallen by $190,000 off of that. So it's a 23% drop from the peak in February of the selling prices that are being transacted right now. Again, the, when, when they do projections saying, hey, this stuff's going to continue in the future, I'm not so sure of that. Um, but this, this, we could be establishing a bottom here. And I, and, I, and I don't think that's necessarily the, the point of bringing up this conversation is to figure out that, hey, this is going to keep going because back in February, if we had polled everybody, it was going to go straight up from there. So I think a little bit of this is just piling on, just going in a new direction. Therefore, let's project it forward in that direction. Yeah, sure. Let, let me ask you a different question. So we're, let's say in a lot of markets, their real estate's down based on average sale price, 10 to 15%. Have you had any of your clients come in recently saying that they have to sell their house? No, no. It, it, again, it, unfortunately, it tends to be one of the larger financial decisions we make. So it is quite fraught and it is on many people's minds. I've bumped into people that are saying that I, I need to wait for it to drop further before yeah. I sell. There, there's, there's people like that. But again, these people are trying to time something, in my opinion, that's not timeable. And you know, to me, the, the decision to sell your house is more of a personal planning decision, a personal lifestyle decision, and those kind of things. Yeah, around the margins, if you were 50-50 on doing something, people were maybe more likely to sell before than they are now, um, for sure. But the other interesting thing I, I, I read on this was that somebody was positing that maybe we don't have a housing shortage. We just had a bunch of people speculating on housing. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're preaching to the choir on that one. I think we've gone through the different, the different issues with the demand supply thing before. I, I think you probably do have somewhat of a housing shortage, but I also think that when interest rates are zero percent and you can get a five-year fixed mortgage under two percent, well, that speculative activity and that demand for housing is really incentivized to go out there and buy property. And that that's that's what you had, and I think that that was probably a much more significant effect on the prices of houses than anything supply wise. Well, yeah, and if this was largely been a spec, any percentage of this has been driven by speculation. Those people are being squeezed because their objective for owning a home is different than somebody who's living in it. So there's going to be some uncomfortable people at that end of the market for sure, and perhaps for the foreseeable future. I've got clients who this whole boom, have actually been trapped in properties that they couldn't get their money back out of, mm -hmm. which is one of those regional risks in real estate um, that can happen. And, and, and again, I think that it's important to, to go back to 30,000 feet again and say, like, the point bringing this up is real estate's not a slam dunk. It has periods of time where it significantly has issues, either with return or with liquidity. Um, and the, you know, the future for the next little bit is, is, is quite murky uh, and it's an inefficient market. 
you know, it's dramatic. The numbers are dramatically different by region across Canada. And just because the region's winning at one point in time doesn't mean it's always going to win because again, there's things outside of the normal supply and demand that can affect regional availability or regional demand for housing. You've got unrealistic players in the market who are going to ask way too much for their property and they're going to persist you know, longer than they would typically persist in other asset classes. So again, by region, and even though the averages are dropping by region could drop a lot more or a lot less or be more liquid or less liquid. So if this has been driven by speculation, then the speculators are having happened to them. What happens to speculators? They're, they're getting crunched a little bit for a while. Yeah. The reason I asked that question before about people running out to sell the real estate now is because I feel like it's a little bit different than what we deal with with stocks, where stocks were down 10, 15, 20% earlier this year. People were running out to sell their stocks. If I told somebody that their house was down 15% in value this year, they might not even understand or know that. And their their response would probably be, well, it went up 30% last year. It's not surprising to see a 15% drop in the value of the real estate. I don't know why people think so differently about real estate than they do with stocks or bonds, for example. But I have to think it has something to do with the fact that they're getting slapped in the face on a daily basis with what their stocks are priced at. And that same phenomenon doesn't doesn't happen with their house. Well, that's just thing, you know, and that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, when they get their tax assessment this year, it's not going to be fifteen percent lower. And they're going to. You can look at your account every day. You can look at your account in the middle of the day and watch the valuation. So, yeah, there's a way different expectation for sure. But you you raise a good point. The only other mitigating factor there is a house is not just an investment. You live in them. We buy houses to live in. The whole idea that this is somehow an investment thing, I think, is taken a disproportionate amount of the conversation. And that's because some people tell stories about getting rich off of it. And everybody thinks that's the way to get rich. And it's a widely held belief, which is why we're recording this podcast to point out it doesn't always work out well, easily, or in every location. Yeah. It seems like it's been a really frustrating couple of years for buyers because on the one hand, the prices were too high and going up, 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 and they had to stick their neck out to buy something. And now prices are coming down and they're getting all giddy, but then they look at their interest rates on the mortgage potentially. And they're like, oh, well, that's not, I'm not in any better position now. So I feel for those people because it's been, it's just been that, that type of couple of years. It's been very frustrating. Josh, you are those people that that's why you feel for those people. It's very clear exactly where you are in the whole groups of people thing. <laughs> we know that. But uh, I, I went in eyes wide open knowing that I was going to buy at the top. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah no. and, and flip back to previous podcasts and us making comments on how that's just fine. Yeah. So you, we'll send you on a treasure hunt because that, that podcast is out there. So, so do you want to move on to the second sacred cow? Well, yeah, there, there's sort of a natural progression from real estate to banks and banks you call it a sacred cow because every Canadian loves their banks, their bank stocks, they're precious to them. Banks never go down in value, just like real estate. Neither of these things ever go down in value. And there's never anything that could happen bad to Canadian bank because they've always increased their dividends. And over longish periods of time, they've always made money. So why wouldn't I just put 100% of my portfolio into Canadian banks? Well, and I'd, I'd like to... to, to annotate that a little bit. It's a love-hate relationship. 
you love <laughs> and trust holding the, the shares in the yeah. bank, but you hate the service you're getting from the bank. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? You're, you're investing in a business because you think it's awesome, but you actually hate that business? Well, there's a correlation there because if they treated everybody fairly, they'd be less profitable and they'd yeah. be less interesting to own as a, as a business. So, yeah, I was talking to a client this morning and she said, yeah, I'm reading about these banks and it seems like they're having a really hard time. But then I read and they're making $1.6 billion in profit this quarter. That doesn't seem too bad. I said, no, it's it's actually not too bad. It's pretty good. They're going to make somewhere between five and $10 billion in profits this year, most likely for most of them. And she said, yeah, they probably only get that way because they're picking on the little guy, people like you and me. And it's like, yeah, that's probably true. Yep. No, absolutely. And uh, well, we should thank them. If they, if they tried to do a really good job, there'd be less room in the world for people like us. So they've given us room to grow and I appreciate that. But I pulled up the numbers as of today, which is August the 26th. Taking a look at the Canadian banks year to date, there's an ETF that tracks the Canadian banks, ZEB, which uh, has an equal weight of the Canadian, the major Canadian banks in it. And it's tracking down 11.5% year to date. And that's it. on its own, that's down. Everything else is down as well. But, you know, the overall Canadian market is only down about 5% year to date. So that is a little interesting. Now, again, the Canadian market is not all that broad as far as number of categories go. Um, but typically the Canadian banks are not one of the weaker components of the index. So again, not calling them bad businesses. They're still going to make a few billion dollars. Uh, but to say, hey, they're always the best place to be, and that's you, you can invest there and kind of forget about everything else and be okay, is probably a little optimistic. And that's largely based on expectations now for the Canadian economy, because all of the banks, when they release their most recent earnings numbers, are increasing loan loss provisions and things of that nature, which, again, are economically sensitive things. So I don't know, Josh, have you seen any other evidence anecdotal or otherwise as to what kind of shape the banks are in right now? Well, I've been reading those quarterly reports just like you have, and it seems like they're doing okay. Yes, the loan loss provisions are off, but they're coming off of a very low point as well. Because during COVID, surprise, surprise, everyone thought that loan losses were going to go way up. But because of the handouts from the government, they actually came way down, did the opposite. So yeah, they're increasing, but they're increasing from an exceptionally low level. Uh, just to play devil's advocate uh, against your the argument here a little bit, they also are seeing higher interest rates, net interest margins is what they typically call that on the loans. So higher interest rates, kind of a good thing for them because they can charge more on the money that they're lending out. So it's a bit of a mixed bag right now, I think, for them. But I think to your point, they've gone down more than the broad market this year. So the fact that these things are are safer than average at all times, I don't. It might be a bit of a misconception. Yeah, no, and, and again, like it's it's kind of funny. We're, we're, I feel we're walking a little bit of a fine line. The, our my, my perception is that the the general opinion of these things, like, oh my god, they're amazing. They're never bad. You should always hold them. And our opinion is like, they're good, but you, you can't just bet on that and only that and, and expect to have the best possible outcome. And at times like this, it's just worth noting that it's the overall market is doing considerably better. Uh, I think the other thing that's playing into the banks is again, with the market sell-off, I think some of their trading revenues might be a little bit more challenged. Uh, there's such an, there's such a 
conglomeration of so many different types of businesses that it's sometimes difficult to completely attribute whether their success or failures are coming from. Yeah. Well, the wealth management revenue seemed to be down for most of them because as markets go down, wealth management revenue goes down and their trading revenue, as you said, capital markets. So less companies uh, doing IPOs and things like that, then they're going to generate less sort of commission income for lack of a better word from that as well. So there's a number of headwinds that they're facing right now. I think one of the things we've you've talked about, especially in the past, is price for perfection. And because so many people are interested in owning Canadian banks, that means that they're priced relatively high for what they are. And if there's any missteps or headwinds along the way that people aren't expecting, then there could be more price volatility around that uh, due to those factors. So um, it's something to keep in mind. And I guess, so here's a question for you again, Colin. Canadian banks, global banks, are we so much better than the rest of the world at banking? Oh, really? You really, you want to make sure that this podcast gets banned like in our own country? <laughs> well, we let's have just to say, let's, let's just say that the, the Canadian banks enjoy a friendly relationship uh, with the regulators in their home jurisdiction. Uh, that allow them advantages that they don't get other places in the world, which I think is one of the reasons you see them try to branch outside of Canada and not do so well. Uh, so again, it's one of those things that you, you like, you like to have a stable monetary system. And I think that for, for all of the, the slings and arrows, maybe we throw at the banks, the fact that they're so widely regarded as a positive thing is very, very positive to the country. Um, so there's certainly a non-monetary payoff. To having that kind of belief in the monetary system like I, other countries experience runs on banks and issues like that and well, that's something that's completely un-canadian so yeah i think that they have a little bit of a favorable relationship here but i also think we all benefit from that favorable relationship oh my god i think i'm actually defending them wow the event <laughs> went full circle well i'm going to push back i'm going to defend them as well because he said that they haven't done that well outside of canada but i think scotia generates more than 50 percent of the revenue outside of canada td more than 50 percent of their branches are outside of canada rbc bmo they've all made cibc they've all made a pretty good imprint on the u.s market especially so i i think they have had success outside of canada i guess my my point is is more that there's been some very large very well-established global banks that have hit some very big trouble along the way. And to think that Canadian banks are immune from that, I think is naive. Although to your point, there are definitely some protections in place that, that perhaps make them a little bit uh, stronger or more resilient than some of their global peers. Let me ask the question that I know is burning amongst all of our listeners at this exact moment, Josh. Dude, the banks are down. Isn't this a great time to load up? <laughs> They're down 10%, which I don't think is that material uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and I don't think something being down is a, uh, necessarily a good reason to buy it or not to buy it for that matter. I, I don't think the fact that they're down, I don't think that means anything to you at this point, I guess is is the point. And certainly if we thought they were a little bit overvalued before, probably need to see a bit more of a correction than 10% for us to really think it's a pound the table buy or something like that. 
But I guess, by the way, we do have some Canadian bank exposure for pretty much all of our clients. It's almost impossible not to uh, as a Canadian investor. And we're certainly comfortable having some Canadian bank exposure. It's just we don't want 57% of our portfolios to be in Canadian banks because that's probably a little bit irrational. Oh, yeah. And again, the other point, when people ask me that question, I say, do you think that Canadian banks are the only good businesses that are down right now? Sure. Whenever you're making a decision, it's never about, hey, is this a good investment? No, no. Is this the best possible place to allocate capital right now? That's the question. So having a, a narrow view on one industry doesn't get you to the strongest answer. It's you got to look at the whole playing field because we've done that in the past. We've taken a look at Canadian banks versus U.S. banks versus European banks, and there's it's all the same sector, so it has some of the same variables to them. You should be looking at the much broader picture when you're making those decisions, rather than hey, this is one thing that's good. I know this one thing, and I like this one thing. This one thing is good. I'm going to put this one thing in my thing, and I'm going to keep that one thing. That kind of all in one direction is is how you make bigger mistakes. Yeah, if you really like pizza and pizza's on sale, you don't want to buy pizza every day because you might not like pizza so much anymore. Law of diminishing marginal returns, I believe, is how they framed that in my economics 101 class in university uh, so many years ago. Yeah, there you go. I think I think currently we would describe it more as a concentration issue, but you know, diminishing <laughs> marginal returns also applies. Yeah, potato, potato. <laughs> so wrapping up, maybe Colin and I have debunked some of the commonly held beliefs out there. Maybe we've made a couple other people dig their heels in a little bit stronger than they have ever in the past. And maybe we have some people writing us an email right now that says, I've owned Canadian banks for 30 years. They've never gone down. I've owned real estate for 30 years. They've never gone down. We're here to keep debating this topic and to keep providing evidence on both sides of the spectrum. And I guess I would say just because it's never happened doesn't mean it never can happen. No, you're right, Josh. We may be just in the wind, but you know, that seems to be our specialty, tilting at windmills. Uh, and again, for the record, we don't think these are terrible investments. They're just not as good as y'all think. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth, Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, as an offer to sell, or this. Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different.
This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.